Welcome to Documentary Storytellers. My name is Chris King, a documentary photographer and filmmaker. And with this podcast, I'm exploring the ideas, experiences, and practices of fellow photographers and filmmakers who are driven by a desire to have a positive impact on the issues that they document. This week, I'm speaking to documentary filmmaker Gemma Atkinson, who's based between London and Barcelona, and co-founded the production company Fatrat Films 15 years ago, where she's currently the creative director. Gemma has a vast amount of experience within the industry and has produced countless films and other content for NGOs and international institutions across the globe, as well as her own personal projects. Gemma and I discuss her motivations for creating a production company over freelancing, how her approach to documentary storytelling has changed over the years and continues to change, and how to be an effective storyteller, and much, much more. Before I leave you to the interview, I would like to thank you for listening to my podcast. I really hope you're enjoying the interviews and getting something positive from each one of them. It's been an amazing experience for me so far, and I'm very grateful to have the opportunity to talk to the people I interview and to be able to share that with you. They're all inspiring individuals doing amazing work. If you'd like to suggest anyone for the podcast, a documentary storyteller striving to have positive impact on the issues they document, then please DM me via social media. Documentary Storytellers is on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn currently. Or you can email me at chris at documentarystorytellers.com. Enjoy the interview. If you wouldn't mind introducing yourself and the work that you do, that'd be great. My name is Gemma Atkinson and I'm a documentary filmmaker. I'm the creative director at Fat Rat Films, my production company I set up 15 years ago. And right now we do a lot of work exclusively for charities, NGOs, INGOs and UN agencies, as well as our own films. What inspired you to pick up a camera and to become a documentary filmmaker? I guess my motivation was showing people kind of what was behind the curtain of the quick news story. So when I started filmmaking or documentary filmmaking, there wasn't a lot of documentary wasn't very popular then. It was, I think, touching the void was what made documentary popular. And then that slowly kind of increased um, and catfish and, and docs like that. So when I was starting, there weren't platforms for short docs, there weren't funding opportunities, there weren't really platforms showing documentaries or streaming. And I realised I could do something, um, maybe show people with curiosity, curious minds, something a bit more behind the curtain, a bit more in depth behind that news story they may have seen and then forgotten the next day. And so the films I wanted to make, I wanted people to really sit with and think about having watched it delve deeper into those stories and get the human stories behind the issue and allow people to then sit with that, maybe relate to that, see that person on screen and have much more of a, an emotional response, which made, which hopefully makes them think more on that topic or issue that I was bringing forward. I suppose in, in a sense then you were trying to slow down the news, you know, and, and obviously bombarded with stories and, and information related to what's going on in the world, but very rarely unless we proactively go out there and seek additional information beyond the news then we don't have access to that depth and that understanding and the human story so it sounds like you wanted to slow things down and give people add greater depth to people's understanding of what's really going on behind the stories would that be correct yeah exactly and that breathing space i think and really yeah to be able to sit with something and and you know it's it's like when you go to the cinema and you watch a film doesn't you don't always have your initial um, reaction straight away or thoughts on that film. But over the days and the weeks that follow, then slowly things seep into your mind that you remember from the film and something you see triggers that memory that you remember from that film or someone's sound bite or someone's story. 
and that's what yeah documentary allows um allowed me to do for people um and and I, you know there is a, a more selfish element to it which is it allowed me to go and you know speak to people meet people who I'd never normally meet or speak to in my my walk of life and travel the world to these corners of the world that I never would have if it wasn't for making documentaries on these incredible stories on these incredible people and I learned so much and that was my motivation really mo- going forward every day was what's next who am I going to meet next you know what story am I going to you know hear how can I tell it and how can I better amplify their voice so it was there's a you know there's a huge privilege in documentary filmmaking which I'm not sure is always appreciated um or known about but you know the privilege of being allowed to enter people's lives and have them trust you enough to speak to you about what's a lot of the time most one of their most harrowing experiences of their lives or a very difficult time in their life that they have to recount for you and your camera that trust that they give you is so incredible and so huge and that privilege that I have then to take that footage and go into the edit and honor that story and honor their story and give them the voice and that they deserve because they make the voice hasn't been heard before I'll never stop appreciating that and how do you develop that trust then how do you get people to believe and, and invest in what you're trying to do and, and to give you that access and to open up and and be vulnerable in front of you and, and your camera? It's a really good question. You know, you take a lot of um, time to build relationships off camera, a lot of honesty from my part to them of what this film, the hope of the film, but the reality of potentially the film not having the impact that um, I'm making it for. Um, and it depends whether it's for a client film, of course, or my own film. But I've always been very honest up front with my contributors. The, the films would be nothing without them. And unfortunately, with client films nowadays, the budgets are getting smaller and smaller. So there's not much more. There's not a lot of time to create those relationships and build those relationships before you even start filming. But that is a, a process I like to do. And then hopefully, and I and I share, you know, my vulnerabilities with them, and I try to relate to them as much as possible even if it's someone who you think you might not have anything in common with, there's always something that unites us. So again, this is off camera, but I share, you know, my stories and, you know, something that make them feel that they can talk to me openly on camera and off camera about their own experiences. But I think it is really important to have that dialogue at the beginning of any film of your desires, their desires as well, because you have to get them to want to be part of the film or want to express their story in their own words. So it's more of a collaboration as well. These films would be nothing without contributors. I love contributors, I love meeting them, I love, you know, the way they allow us into their lives and there has to be a trust going both ways. But yeah, I try to be vulnerable with them and and try to be honest with them. And that's, that's the best way of approaching it. In terms of representation, then, is that something that ever concerns you, especially if, if you're being if you've been commissioned by a client and they have a particular agenda and, and they want a particular story to be told? Has there ever been a time when what's being demanded of you hasn't been in line with your own ethics and that you've been asked to represent things in a way that you might not otherwise? I don't know if there has ever been that conflict there's been one one charity very early on in my career that that I wasn't comfortable with working for after a short time of working for them because I realised that the women we were interviewing weren't um, were potentially being not forced that's completely the wrong word but were, were were felt the felt the need to say something that that wasn't true because the translator we had on 
with us was um, from the organisation itself. And so there was definitely a conflict there and um, it didn't feel right. And there was no way of me interpreting. There was a very specific dialogue. Usually I can understand, you know, if it's sort of Roman, Roman languages, I can get vaguely what's going on, but this is extremely <laughs> specific dialect to that region in this country. And I can't say much more than that, but um, it was many, many years ago, but we, um, and we needed the work at that time. This is right at the start of the company. But we just said we can't do this anymore. Uh, we're just not comfortable, really, with the information coming from the women. We don't understand if they are benefiting or not. Exactly, and we feel like it's been. And then we felt that I well, I felt I was manipulating it then in the edit, you know. And and what about that? Generally speaking, in terms of representation, because obviously there's an issue there, and there's there's a need to decolonize visual communication, and and obviously the. The overseas development industry has a role to play in kind of maintaining people's perception of within the global north of people within the global south and things like that. So in terms of your role, our role as documentary storytellers, how do you think we can best ensure that we're not contributing to to that issue of, of just misrepresenting people and communities and and even entire nations? Yeah, I mean, I think what I just said is probably one one way if if you feel uncomfortable and if you get a sense and your instinctual sort of self is saying something's wrong here that's one way of walking walking away um even if it's cost you a job or a client or word of mouth that's it's worth doing I think to stick to your principles and I think what we're doing more and more um is using local crew I don't know if this answers your question exactly but so, yeah, we always make sure that we have uh, full representation of all colours, genders, uh, uh, sexual orientation, dis- able bodies, dis- disabled bodies, um, if and where we can. If a film calls for multiple contributors in one film, we always make sure, yeah, there's... Uh, uh, a lot of the films we make were for uh, female empowerment anyway, so a lot of them were based on women, which is my, my love and my um, interest... Um, is the female experience and giving them a voice because they're often unheard. And we do do a lot of work in the global south, much more than the global north. So um, that's even more important that we give those women uh, a platform to speak and tell their stories. And then in terms of crew, I think it is probably relevant, is that we make sure that there is local... Whether If it's not just the fixer, then it's the director or the producer, which means, again, we have to step back. So I might be producing remotely... But getting local director on, on the ground or the DP who understands culturally what's going on, religiously what's going on, wh- wherever they are in the world, wherever those people that we're filming have to, had to take time off work. Because they don't often say, often we're not to, you know, told, you know, this is actually quite a big chunk out of my day for you to take. You know, this means I'm going to lose my wages today because and I can't take, send my kid to school today because of this, because you want him in the film, et cetera, et cetera. So having an understanding of that, which, of course, I do, but it's always, always better to have someone on the ground to inform you because they're more likely to tell the person on the ground than they are to me and, and speak more freely in, in terms of what's disrupting them or not. Um, so I'm also, yeah, I'm always very careful about how we film and who we're filming and appreciating their time and um, working around their schedules rather than my own and my crew's. And have you seen a shift in terms of that, an understanding of the need to engage local crew and gain local support rather than just, you know, people from the global north, very often white 
middle class individuals coming in and then just dominating in, in, in the sense of how the, the story is told and, and more that very extractive approach to documentary filmmaking as well. Do you think there's been a, a change? There's been a huge, huge shift. But I think we would, and especially since COVID, really, that's when the change has happened and people have become more aware that the remote directing and the remote producing calls for that. So you're almost forced into it. But people were aware before, uh, for sure, the NGOs. And, and we were doing it many, many years before. We've been remote directing, producing for years because of this. And, and not just because of, again, I'll be very, very transparent and honest, because it's not just because that, it's because of budgets as well. And it didn't make sense to go out. And then the more we did that, the more we realised actually the, the, the advantages of doing that, the advantages of using local crew and how much better that was for people on the ground, not only for the economy of that particular place, but for the contributors themselves to be able to tell their stories openly. But yeah, we've been remote directing for, for a long time, um, pre-COVID. But now, you know, there's, there are some great organisations, some well-known um, NGOs that we work for, who, who I won't name just in case, but one of them is doing a really great project based exactly on what you're talking about and actually looking at their inner, inner practices of white saviorism and how they've been doing over the years and how they can change and doing lots, many, many focus groups on this and going to specific places, doing children's workshops on this, getting everyone's point of view, asking the children, from adults to children, from people in the industry to the, to the media to other NGOs, to filmmakers, and getting everyone's input of how do these images sit and how do these films look to the outside world and how, what's it doing to the person in the film. Um, and, you know, then consent comes up, you know, inform, is it just for that one image for that one campaign or is it that image that can sit in their library or our library for 10 years and be used for, oh, that's the perfect image for this next campaign, you know, that they never consented to. And they're never going to see the money. You know, that might be the, the, the more distressing image or images might be the one that is better for fundraising, for example. But is it right to exploit someone in that way? Because that person will also never get to see the, the funds or their lives improved or the water pump in their village or the school built for their children. So um, it's, the conversations become really interesting, I think. And I really admire this one organisation for doing what they're doing because... They actually wanted us to film their process and completely openly and transparently and and not have final and give us final cuts because of course then if we gave them final cut then they might say oh we don't look great on that bit or that you know or you know so that was really I think really brave and it's really getting you know, the conversation spoken about and it's practices that we are we 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 already kind of have here at Fat Rat. You're, it's a work in progress, is it or? It, there... Yes, it's well again because of everything. <laughs> there are things that are paused and on the shelf and to come back to, but the majority of that project's been done. But it's just about the edit, really, and getting it out. Okay, yeah, I look forward to seeing that. Sure. And in terms of the stories that you have documented, which are the ones that have really stuck with you and just somehow moved you, or inspired you, or changed you in some way? I mean, so many of them stay with me, and. This again, it's the people that I wonder about now. You know, there's that that woman that we met in the you know Niger who was mining with mercury while breastfeeding her baby, and the people growing up around these mines in Kyrgyzstan, um, who are, it's it's the people now that I think back to, and I think it's always the children and the women that really 
always strike me and stay with me and it's especially when I look back it's the children really that I think about because I think oh god that was that's five years ago for me which is basically nothing but for them they've gone from an eight-year-old to you know they're sunny and they're you know they're teens and what are they going to do with their lives and what does their future look like so there's I mean there's so many there's Shamer and Hussein which is a film I made years and years ago about um, a man under house arrest uh Jordanian alleged uh terrorist by the UK government and Jordanian authorities who was treated horrifically by the UK government and I got really close with him and his daughter Shema who was a sweet four-year-old and now she must be she's 18 19 they were forced back to go back to Jordan now and what what is her life you know I they also and then I imagine things I love I love using my imagination and you know making it okay sometimes in my mind and I'm in touch with lots of other with lots of people as well I've, I've filmed from years ago but the, yeah there are so many that stick with me like I say mostly the children obviously you're coming from a place of wanting to create positive change and, and wanting to raise awareness what impact do you think your films have had maybe separating that out because obviously you work for NGOs and and other organizations so you may not have oversight as to how that has happened but so maybe separating that out with personal projects at the beginning like I say documentary wasn't very big so at the beginning when we started at the beginning of my career I was it was all about raising awareness and showing people worlds that they may not know in depth worlds and that was enough and but over the years um, it's, it's not just about raising awareness, it's about creating impact, real impact, because what's the point of making a film, first of all, if no one's going to watch it? And what's the point of someone watching it and some harrowing account or some, 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 someone's life that they feel they have no agency at the end of the film to do anything about? So it's more and more important that we, and we've been doing this for years, but we do with most of our films, especially, well, all of our films, but we have an ask. There's always, like, is it the campaign ask? Is it... Is it click here to sign this petition? Is it to go to your MP? Is it to write a letter? Is it to add your signature? Is it to share the film? Yes, and that's raising awareness, but actually sometimes that's what you need before the actual the impact part. So I guess in, early on in my career, the impact, the one that had the biggest impact was uh, an animation I made called Act of Terror, which is actually based on uh, something that happened to me with the police in England. And they just, they were abusing their powers under the Terrorism Act. And this all this is this is what my motivation at the beginning really was was making documentaries. It was social justice and civil liberties being um, that was the kind of the big core of what we were doing, what I was doing. And Tony Blair was in power, and he just kept pushing in these little laws quietly. Someone would write in the paper, like I say, it'd be forgotten the next day. And I was like, no, 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 this is huge. This people need to know, and and people need to know their rights. So my big ask for this one film was know your rights it's a tricky law because it's dry right it's really dry there's nothing sexy about terrorism the terrorism act nothing at all you know how do you make that fun and silly so we made a little animation me voiceover me animated um my partner animated as well with this amazing um animator called uh una maserati great name and and a scriptwriter adam i and we it, it just went it was, it was just the impact of that really at that time was great because it educated people on their rights. It actually, in a fun and silly way, like I say, we chose animation to make it fun. We made it silly. Adam's very funny. He injected a lot of humour into the script. And 
at the end of that, we did a distribution plan. Again, wasn't very big then, <laughs> like distributing your film. How do you distribute your film? Back in 2013, when we released this film, it wasn't um, a known thing. So we sort of did a whole blog about how the vlog, how to do that. Um, and as we did this experiment of how to distribute a film, because we self-funded it. Well, in fact, sorry, I, I won the case against the Met, which took years. So I was given a little bit of money, and with that money, I put that into the film, and that's how we got this film out. Um, and then we got it on um, The Guardian. Again, back then, it, was, it wasn't easy to go on The Guardian. And then it just picked up and picked up, and we just hit everyone up. And, and it went on Boing Boing, and it was on Reddit, and it was, it was, we were more popular than... Was it Obama? No, Obama wasn't around. Was it Prince William? something crazy like and we went viral but when viral meant something the film went viral and everyone was talking about it from Germany to England to America to the States I mean every everyone was going on about it because because it was suddenly being educated on the law yes it was a British law but it was also about police abusing their power and then the I, IPCC covering up for the Met and all you know this whole horrible kind of corporate system that was beginning more power if you can remember back then they didn't have that much power not the, the power they have today and so it was, yeah, that was that had a huge impact. And it, like I say, it went viral, which actually meant something back then. Um, I can't remember the amount of views, which now sounds absolutely like nothing, but then it was huge. So that was probably the film that's made the biggest impact in my early career and was one of our own sort of fat rap productions. And really recently, my partner made a film about the World Cup... Uh, there's a World Cup, the World Cup that just happened last year, and a whistleblower who was spoken out through this organisation called Equidem, who are incredible. They're a very small NGO, but they're a very powerful NGO. And that is, that's making waves. Um, there was some, some outputs, there's a, a documentary to follow, which is coming out in, a, in the next month. Um, but that had big readership. I can't remember the actual, the impact exactly of that in terms of, sorry, figures and stats. But it got people, again, listening, sitting up, realising that these migrant workers were being abused and exploited and not paid and the passports being taken and all these horrific things because of this one charity that has been exposing um, what FIFA have been doing. So, it's, um, so yeah, that's, that's something I'm kind of proud of at the moment. Maybe we can talk a bit about, about your clients because, and, and about your personal projects because obviously there's going to be a very different approach between the two. So do you still have personal projects that you, that you work on or do you work exclusively for organisations, third parties? It's 99% for clients that are NGOs and um, I NGO with UN agencies at the moment. Before COVID, it was 50-50. So it's the creative side of the company and the commercial side and the commercial is the NGO side. We don't do commercial corporates, is what I mean. But yeah, since then, we've been just trying to, we just keep getting the, the paid work in. We have to keep going because our company's grown. We have more and more overheads. We have all of the wages to pay. We're, we never furloughed anyone during COVID, which I'm incredibly proud of because we're a small company and those people rely on us for their jobs. But um, it does mean that other parts of the company have suffered. And I'm trying to do, I am trying to, build it back up but it's very slow very slow incremental steps to be able to because you put what the thing about creative is you put a lot of time I'm sure you know this as a documentary filmmaker as well but or a photographer you you put a lot of time into ideas and writing them up and then going to commissioners or funding bodies and then that process is so long that you and so time consuming that you can't often it's not very sustainable basically it was previously when everything was great but covid really impacted us <laughs> 
I'm afraid so. In terms of the commercial clients, then how how have you been able to grow that? How have you gone about that? Because obviously you've got that legacy and so you've got that authority and, and you have that network. But how have you gone about growing it and, and expanding it in a way that you have that part of the business? So I'll just go, I'll give you a bit of history about Fat Rats and then get to that. So Fred and I started Fat Rat 15 years ago and it was just the two of us until about three or four years ago. And in that time, we built our client base, but there was only a couple, you know, at the beginning. But two, it started with Comic Relief. That took us to the elders through this amazing woman called Melagas, who introduced us to the elders. From the elders, there was an offshoot from them, which is Girls Not Brides. From there, then you get people who are working there over a period of years, go off to a different charity. So then all of those comms people know us, and they're now working for another five, and so on and so on. So that tree grows. So it's all, it was all word of mouth is how we got our work. And so we had Oxfam and The Elders, Girls Not Brides, Publish What You Paid, World Health Organization and many others. And then we realized we needed to expand a bit more. Well, we we decided to expand. And then a month later, we brought on two new business development managers, BDMs, a strategist. And then a month later, COVID hit. So, uh, but we managed to keep them on, like I say. And then so that one of the BDMs has now brought in more so the WHO is huge so then suddenly we've got all these there's all these other sublets of the WHO so we've got a lot of them and then brought in some UN agency work and we do we do do a lot of bidding as well which again is a lot of time and resources out of a small company like ours with seven people now because the competition is so high and usually if there's a budget of over sort of $25,000 it has to go out to tender um, legally from the NGO side so um, even if we have relationships with all of these people, it's not necessarily always ours. We have to bid, and then you, it's, it's an open tender at that point. But that's how we've grown, and our client base has grown, of course, and some worked for some really interesting um, charities across um, over the years because of this, these new clients um, the BDM brought in. So you created a production company very early on in, in your career. Why was that? Did you feel instead of being a freelancer and, and going from job to job, what it, what motivated you to set up a production company so early on? I yeah, I guess uh, the, the options I saw at the time um, was I was at uni and I was finishing my third year, and I was realizing that the only way to get into the industry, what I thought at the time, was to be a runner um, in the television companies. And I'd heard really horrific stories about um, how they're treated um, and then how long it takes to kind of climb that ladder. Um, and then when you get to that ladder, then you become that horrible person. That you, you know. And I was like, oh, it doesn't sound like a very nice world. And I don't really want to do that. So um, I was lucky enough that my I was living with my dad in London um, at, in uh, when I was back from uni. And two of my friends uh, were also in London. So we're able basically to stay in London. I just lived at my dad's house. So I didn't have to have a very well-paid job in order to stay in the hub of the creative media world, which it was kind of then. So between me and my two friends, we started another company, which is actually previous to Fat Rat. And um, we bought one laptop. We had bought one camera between the three of us. And we just worked around the clock um, doing mostly drum and bass Um filming drum and bass clubs and editing those and then go to interview DJs and MCs, which was a lot of fun because I loved drum and bass back then. 
and and we had this one laptop so we got the editing software so that's why we'd have to do it in shift work you know I'd filmed from eight in the evening till two in the morning well really till eight in the morning drop the rushes back at my friend's house he'd edit from like eight in the morning till two in the afternoon then my other friend would turn up two till eight he'd he'd edit then I'd turn up and eight till two start editing as well so it was just this kind of crazy we were young <laughs> you had the energy to do that um and that was definitely preferable to um being a runner like you're working with friends people you liked and doing really and going and filming things you liked um and meeting people who you thought were cool at the time so that was that was quite good for a while and then we sort of didn't really know what direction we were going in so we were doing lots of we did fiction we did some doc but we did commercial work and like corporate stuff and then I realized that wasn't really for me any of that kind of misdirection also I didn't want to do fiction I knew that I knew I wanted to do documentary so then after four and a half years of running that company started Fat Rat Films with Fred and that's when we started working exclusively for uh, NGOs and charities. So from the outset that's what you wanted to do you want you wanted to set up a production company and you felt that that was the best approach to to achieving what you wanted to achieve. Yeah I think there's probably a little bit of control freakishness in there um, I thought I would have lots more creative control over the films I wanted to make I always knew I wanted to do film from a young age but maybe not documentary and then that's I think doing all these other types of film like um, fiction and corporate and um, scripted stuff was made me realize how much I wanted to do documentary and realize that kind of passion and then what the first couple of couple of jobs we had in NG, for the NGOs made me realize how incredible that world was really um you know one of our first jobs was with the elders so I was I was meeting I was filming with Kofi Annan and Archbishop Desmond Tutu Mary Robinson and met Nelson Mandela and we're just with this incredible group of people these ex-world leaders and still they're still our client back from then so the elders are still our client from 15 16 years ago and it's it's just a beautiful world I, want, I knew I wanted to be a part of and and this privilege of telling stories hearing stories and hearing this wisdom is something that I was just attracted to very very early on and yes the production company seemed to be like the only literally it seemed to me like there was only the TV a runner for tv or start your own production company I'm sure there's a million other things you could have done <laughs> but for me those like seemed like the two options and I was able to do the other one because of this situation in London and having friends who want to do exactly the same thing so. in terms of personal projects so you're saying that 99% is focused on on your NGO work and because of everything that's going on with the company, you don't have a, a chance to do that. But what if you were to to do a personal project now, what, what do you think you would want to focus on if you had that time and the opportunity to? I have lots of ideas in my head of what I want to do. Uh, it is just about finding the time. I probably won't go into the exact ideas, Um so I'll keep them close to my chest. <laughs> but um, it's, like I said, I think before, like what really interests me is women and the female experience and giving women a platform and a voice. And, you know, unfortunately, we still live in a very unequal world. And um, I have a daughter, a six-year-old daughter, and I want to her to be growing up in a world where there is something closer to what I imagine equality looks like um, and for her as well so um, yeah there's lots of ideas brewing and you know and I also want to sort of go into podcasts as well like just not just filmmaking although I'm a very visual person you know I'm interested in um, podcast, not interviews like you do but um, you know getting those stories 
potentially anonymously for women who want to talk about um, what they need to speak about in a safe environment and safe way. So you're starting to explore different ways of documentary storytelling. Yeah, we've done some in the company. We have done some podcasts, um, some audio docs. And in fact, some of the ways I I did a series for Amnesty um, a couple of years ago and it was one of the series I make now standalone films for them. But um, this first series was all that like the process I use was different to my normal production process, which was <clears throat> audio only recordings in wherever, whichever part of the country, the world they were in. And then from there, illustrating with with visuals with my DP then flew out to wherever I was in the world. And then we would I would edit that very quickly on on <clears throat> location, the audio and then get the story, get the structure, and then bring my DP out, and then we'd shoot for that. And I really enjoyed that process, and that was quite a few years ago now I did that. And um, and I think that's the what I really loved was it was just me and the contributor at the time, and it was just us in a room, and it doesn't you don't have to worry about the light, you don't have to worry about, you know, the cat walking through frame, you don't have to worry about, you know, so many things, or the, the expense of the kit or the weight of the kit. It was just, it's much more intimate, I found, doing audio um, in that way. And, and don't get me wrong, I, I love filmmaking. I love it. And I love, and I used to shoot. Um, that was my, that was my biggest passion. It was shooting and directing. And that's how I started. I was sort of a jack of all trades, although that's a negative kind of connotation, that, that, that phrase. It's really important, I think, in what we do, um, all, all filmmakers do. So I, you know, I can produce, direct, shoot and edit and no matter where, therefore, you go later in life, where you go to directing or solely shooting or solely editing, you've got a great understanding of the entire production process. And I think it's so important that everyone experiences that, to have empathy for the other role within the process of making a film. I think it's always good to, to explore different media and ways of communicating because there, there are just so many tools at our disposal now and so few or, or fewer and fewer barriers if you have the resources to go out there and tell stories by some means. And and, and yeah, so if, if you are driven by a desire to have impact or desire to tell a particular story, then the barrier is fewer and lower uh, than ever before. And, and, and as you say, in terms of audio, you don't have to think about all these other aspects that make it a little bit more liberating, or it can be. But still, it, it requires that that whole process, that, that thought process of how best to tell the story. And in terms of the storytelling, then, like, how do you go about developing a story and trying to maximize its impact and and make the most engaging story you can yeah just to just to go back on what you were saying before though is is yeah the the visuals although very important to me the most important is really the story and the story we're telling so whether that is on camera or in audio it doesn't matter to me in that way i've realized that the sort of the longer i got into my career that um it's the story is is gold. The story is the the hero, and visuals are beautiful. And I love watching documentaries, and I would prefer to continue making documentaries. But I also, no, not prefer. I just it's all about the story, and if that's the way I can get it out and make more, get more people and t- tell more stories, then I will do it through audio. And then, sorry, so you're asking about the engaging impact. Well, so in terms of your actual story development. How do you go about, by whatever means, how would you go about maximizing engagement and impact of a story? Like what, what would be your process of, you, you've been given this commission, you, you've been told, right, this is what we want to try and do and achieve with this. How would you go about developing the story? So the very first thing when it's a, 
a, a film that you're making for a client is really to understand what they want. So first of all, what is the impact they want? And people often don't think about their audience when you're right in the concept stage, right in the early stages of pre-production. So I tried to get them to think about their audience and the impact that they want very early on. And whether it's a fundraising video or is it to for people to sign something or is it... Um, is it to there are there are a number of things that people um want from that and um and like i said earlier it's important to give your audience agency so if they haven't thought about that then it's really important to start, try to frame them get their mind to start thinking in that way of once this has been <clears throat> screened whether it's publicly on social media or internally at a conference or both then um you need to give it that your audience um, some kind of to do at the end of some you know something that's going to make them feel like they can they're not completely impotent basically. So I start with like a, a whole like first client questions for for them, which helps to frame their mind. And like you, you know, there's this stuff on there like imagine you know compose a tweet for example um, when you imagine the finished film going out. Like what do you imagine your tweet to say to your peers? And that just really helps them getting into the frame of mind and everything like that. And then once I have all of those answers, there's about 10 sort of solid questions like that, but it's about audience impact, but also the process as well. Um, have, they have, have they had a thought about the contributors? Have they, and how much time we want to spend in pre-production and if, if, you know, everything that comes with it. Then I take away all of that and I work within those parameters and try to be as creative as possible within those parameters set um, and develop uh, uh, an idea and then go back to them. And sometimes it could be that, you know, they're very prescriptive about that, what they want in the first place. Um, so they've seen a piece of work that we've done previously and they say, oh, I want something exactly like this. Or we've worked for them before and it's, we just want a replica of that, but the topic at this time is this. So it depends, yeah, very much on what the, you know, what they want. And then I just try to be creative, as creative as possible within those parameters. That's, that's the way to approach anything. And, and, and then if they sort of let that impact thing fall down a bit, then... <laughs> bring that back to the forefront of their, their minds, which, I mean, our clients are very good at that. You know, they know exactly what their impact is and what they want um, to do, but it's good It's good just to get them reframed, like reframing themselves and reframing the film so that they know what they want. And it's not always a film, you know, we do lots of, like, digital long forms or, like I say, audio or animated explainers or little animations. Um, so we do a lot of... We do a variety of outputs or comms stuff. And what, what do you think makes for... Uh, an effective storyteller, a good storyteller. Like, what what have you developed over the years and, and really felt was key to your practice in terms of being an effective storyteller? I think before you develop anything, I think you have to have a natural curiosity in life and in, in people. You have to be quite, you have to be non-judgmental. You have to be, like, have a real passion for whatever it is that you're going to tell that story about like something that really irks you, something that angers you or something that you really feel like people need to know, you know, something that is so ingrained in you that if it doesn't get funded or commissioned that you just have to keep pushing and pushing because that whole funding world and commission world can be quite negative. And so you have to you have to be really tenacious. You have to, you know, be like a dog with a bone. You know, you can't let anything. So you have to have that innate passion and curiosity for what you're making and in people. Um, you have to be a good listener. You have to go in, yeah, with an open mind often. Even if, you know, we're human, we generally will always have an opinion or an idea of what we think is right and wrong before. But if you go in with an open mind to 
situation and you meet people who have changed your mind then that's what, what that's incredible um you learn and grow as a person and you know I think I learn most probably from my contributors it's the people I've met over the years and that's why I miss going to meet them so much and I know it's great for ethical reasons that I remote produce and direct much more these days but I really miss that connection that I get with people and that they they teach me about life. <laughs> they teach me about how to be a better person. They teach me about communication. They teach me so many things that I don't get sat here um, and me directing a DP or director on the ground. I miss that a lot, actually. Um, I hadn't realised quite how much I missed it until I was speaking to you. <laughs> um, the last time I was away was when I was in Iraq, in northern Iraq, a couple of years ago. So, you know, before it would be, I'd go away probably... 12 times a year to different corners of the world and now it's two years ago I was in Iraq you know and I met these incredible young young men called Vian and Barzan it was a film for Amnesty International and they were just incredible human beings and they'd gone through so much pain and suffering and they had been well Yazidi boys 12 and 13 years old when ISIS came along and took them and forced them to become um, child soldiers and the treatment and the beatings and the brainwashing and then, you know, it was just, it was, and they were, you know, they had all this. So we're making that film, but in obviously in between the shoots and between these amazing moments of, of this beautiful, beautiful stuff that I captured with them, we were in the car together traveling from one place to another or going, going to get a cup of mint tea or whatever it might be or smoking a shisha. And they're just high on life, positive, incredible, beautiful people who weren't bitter or angry or you know these young men who are now 20 and 21 just behave this way and I just learned so much from them you know and you learn from the people you least expect to learn from you know and it, in a way it ma- yeah it makes me happy because I realize how how privileged again I am you know to be in a position where I can meet people like that um but also how privileged I am in my life and maybe the smaller things that I sh- shouldn't let bother me so much and you know so I, I let them teach me, you know, and I, and I love that. I absolutely love that. So obviously your experience of, as a documentary storyteller, you, you've grown immensely through all these experiences and all these interactions with people and exploring these stories. And obviously it seems like you're entering a different phase of, of your career and maybe like it's, and also the world is, is changing as well in terms of an understanding of how we need to tell different stories in a different way and be more inclusive and address power imbalances that have existed thus far and and whether that's uh, gender race or in other dimensions that there's a need for telling stories in a different way so in terms of where you are now how do you feel how do you see how you tell stories change then if if you're doing everything remotely but you have this yearning to be in the field again how do you think uh, this this existing phase that you're going through is going to evolve? <laughs> I don't know, really. Um, it's a really tricky question. I mean, how it's going to evolve for me or for the industry? Well, for, for you and, and then, yeah, if this is something that's occurring across the industry, this evolution in terms of how we tell stories, what, what impact do you think that's going to have? But first of all, first and foremost, you know, how it's impacting you, because clearly there's been a shift 
and you're maybe not getting fulfilled in, in, in the ways that you would like to as a documentary storyteller. And, and so that has to be that has to be addressed somehow. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. And I'm sorry if I've come across so negative as well. Because no. It, <laughs> no, 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 it wasn't. not at all. No, I'm just it's just interesting that because you've said how how you missed that. Yeah, yeah, how, you're right. You know, no, you're completely right. <laughs> so it's, it's not there's no it's not negative or positive. It's just there's been a shift. Yeah. And and not necessarily that's not necessarily a bad thing uh, in some respects but it's just you know how do you see yourself evolving as a as a documentary storyteller then as a consequence of that i'd have to have a really seriously long hard think about that and i and i am actually <laughs> this is something i'm like trying to think about at the moment but i mean i think going into audio storytelling is something that really really interests me um and it means that i can get out and meet people and take that and get have those connections that i miss and I mean, I don't know, AI is taking over, you know, potentially, you know, some of the jobs that we're doing, you know, we, we need to locally source crew, which we are doing. You're right. So how does how does documentary filmmaking change and how do we evolve with it? How do we adapt? And, you know, we've always been adaptable, whether it's, you know, to any of our multiple clients way of working and methods of working, we adapt to their way or to the person we're interviewing. I'm sure that I'll do whatever it's takes and I'll manage to evolve with it but I think I have to wait to see where it's going before I decide what I'm going to do completely that's a really unsatisfactory answer I think but um you completely <laughs> no, stumped no. me I think <laughs> 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 yeah I want to continue telling people's stories I think that's like for me it's it's continuing getting those stories out from people who don't often get the opportunity to speak or have their voice heard and I just want to keep amplifying those voices and whatever impact that is, whether it's just to say, I, I don't know at this moment, depending on the story I'm telling and whose story I'm telling, but um, I want to keep doing, using whatever s- small power I have as a middle-class white woman living in Europe, whatever power I have, whatever kind of, I can give others, maybe in the same position as me, maybe not, um, because I have the tools, the skills or whatever it might be, I want to keep just giving that to people and spreading that kind of love, <laughs> like the empathy, the the stories to get people to reimagine a world where it could be more equal or it could be a better world. Just keep striving for this better world. Keep striving to share experiences, to show that we are united rather than we're all separated. The leaders of today are constantly trying to separate us and use fear to separate us and put us in these little boxes and you're the these people you're those and yours are... no we're not we're all people we're all human we're all united and the stories I'd like to tell are to show how we are all the same um, whether you're a man or a woman and that's why there should be equality whether you are from the global south or global north that's why there should be equality and you know COVID should have done this right that was that was something that really should have been the biggest thing so what is my what can I do but I can try I, I, I will try until I die to make people realise that we are one and we are united and we should be much more empathetic to one another and treat each other kinder. In, in terms of your own personal experiences then, um, as a woman within the industry, how has that evolved in, in the past 15 years it, since you set up Fat Rat Films and to where you are now? Like, What was your experience then and how has it evolved since? You'd think it would have got better. I don't know the change. I don't know. I'm. I mean, what I can say is that I've I set up my company with my partner who's a uh, male, 
and I and he's incredible and he does incredible work and works very hard but so I'm not taking anything away from him but I can see the way I am treated over the years versus him as company directors we are equals but um, there are certain certain things that I have to work harder for shout louder about have to prove myself more or relieve people's doubts you know fight to be listened to I, I mean it's just this is this is not just me and this is not just this industry but um I think it's for many women living in and you know this kind of 1980s type you know I'm 40 now there's been a great change I'm, I'm happy to see and the next gen of the generation below me but it is just harder. To, you just have to fight harder, I think. And I know I'm not complaining. It's probably made me a stronger person. But it's the reality. Uh, but I don't really want that for my daughter. <laughs> Do you see what I mean? Even though it's made me stronger, I don't want her to have to relieve people's doubts all the time because just simply because she's a woman. Yeah, and I, I mean, I want to champion women in this. This is a very male-dominated industry as well. So it's important that more and more women come into it. Um, so I don't want to put anyone off as well. There hasn't been that much of an evolution then over the past 15 years since since you began, or or at least it hasn't shifted in the way that you think it should have, to the degree that you would expect it to. Yeah, I, I, I find change very slow and I get very frustrated, which is partly, you know, the films I make, uh, that's, you know, I want... I want quick fixes, I want quick, you know, I want to make a film and see the impact, I want to see those stats, I want to see people who have watched the film, done something, and then that person be relieved from their poverty or their horrific state that they've been left in to languish in Iraq, for example. I want to see change happen quicker, but the human, that's not how we work as humans. So whether it's about women becoming more equal or the state of anything, anything that needs changing in this world, you know, equality with, with everything, it's just too slow in my mind. Everything's too slow. <laughs> but I maybe mean, I'm an impatient person, who knows? Well, that's, that's the role that I think that we play or, or that we have the potential to play as documentary storytellers is that culture is ultimately underpinned by stories and the stories that have existed thus far have obviously created the culture and, and the societies that we live in and it's not sustainable it's very unjust there are lots of inequalities that need to be addressed and 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 things and that have existed as a consequence of the stories that have been told to date and obviously there have always been dissenting voices and and there have been stories that have been challenging the status quo and the, the prevailing narrative and but there needs to be more stories i think there needs to be more stories about all these different issues and told in in a way in a considered way and, and to make sure that when we're telling these stories that we're not inadvertently contributing to the issue ourselves for whatever reason you know because maybe we haven't considered the power imbalance that we ourselves are maybe participating in be it male female global north global south whatever it is that, that requires a consciousness and an awareness and an understanding of that and, and then incorporating that into how you engage with the world and and yeah like society hasn't necessarily that consciousness hasn't necessarily permeated enough of society for us to see these changes but all the more reason why more of us need to get out there and tell more stories but do so in a in an impactful engaging thoughtful considered way and and i think then hopefully things will speed up that that change it's necessary because yeah and and it's also about 
we need to show that there is an alternative. That's, that's another thing that showing people that a different way exists and the benefits of that different way and, and an understanding and appreciation. So then we can let go of these old stories and, and these old narratives that have underpinned the, the society and, and the cultures that we live in currently. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And that's why I will continue to make films and continue to make stories or tell stories of, from people who who need to be heard and and like you say offer those alternatives and offer those different voices and i think we've heard a lot from certain people or certain types of people so it is important that it is the global south now or the transgender community or more women that are telling their stories and i think what's really important maybe this is slightly controversial but i really think that i'm not going to tell the experience of a transgender person because I don't know what that feels like and I don't know that experience. Equally, like, why we're getting local crew on the ground where someone is telling us their story about something I would never even be able to imagine living and growing up in the way they did. So that's why I want to... I'm very keen and very passionate about telling stories from the female experience because it's something that I know, that it's part of me. And I say it's controversial because, you know... Well, then can anyone tell anyone's story who... Can any man tell my story? Um, you know, or why shouldn't I be able to tell the, the, someone who's struggling with transgender? And I just know I wouldn't do a, as good a job as someone who is a transgender director to tell that transgender person's story. Because how could I do a better job? I just... I might ask more, you know, interesting questions that the, the director may take for um, granted. Not more interesting questions, but more um, questions that are won't be on the top of their mind because it's their lived experience so it won't be so so much of interest potentially to them I'm not really not articulating myself very well but do you understand what I'm saying is yeah no totally I, it's 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 a dilemma for sure but I think that's where the the consciousness of of the imbalances and and colonial mindset and things like that is so important because you know different perspectives are important so so even if you're not necessarily a part of the community that you're documenting that doesn't mean i don't think that you don't have that the story that you tell and and the approach that you take doesn't have value it it does potentially in in telling their story but it's just going to be different it's not going to have the same layers or you know because of everything that we've talked about in terms of going in with your own own biases and prejudices or or your own perception on things but i think it's about where you're coming from and, and where you're at in terms of your understanding of the world around you that will dictate whether it's a positive constructive thing or something that's destructive or you know maintaining a destructive perception of that community so yeah i think i think it's it's something that we need to explore and we need to try and understand you know how how can we still tell stories of those communities that we're not a part of i think it's about empathy it's about leading with empathy and obviously if you're a part of that community you can have a greater degree of empathy because you are living the same or similar experience to them so it gives you that greater depth of understanding and appreciation of of what the person in front of the camera is experiencing and how they're feeling but again i think because we need to tell more stories then I think that diversity still has value and it still has importance because waiting until culture has changed whereby all the imbalances and injustices have been addressed so then only those people within those communities have been empowered and have the skills and the knowledge and understanding of how to tell an engaging story and tell their story and share it with the world. Until that exists, there's still a need to have people other than members of that community to come and help to empower them 
uh, empower others to tell their story, to to share the skills, to share that knowledge. And but it's just it has to be done in that considered way and, and not a top down kind of exploitative, extractive um, method that is maintaining that power imbalance. But it's one that's hopefully working in collaboration and, and addressing the power imbalance with time. But but yeah, it, I think it just takes that time because we're coming from a place where there's you know a real disparity and a real imbalance. And we need to figure out a, an effective way of navigating that point where there is equality and the right people are telling the right stories. Yeah, and it's not to say that I can't make or no one can make stories about people that they don't, they have never lived those experiences of. Of course, that's what I've done for 15, 20 years. And I've made good films out of those. I'm just wondering now when I look back, you know, I went this reflective state of my life clearly, which I hadn't realised till I'm talking to you. <laughs> you know, those films I made, which I'm still proud of, though, could they have done, been better told by someone else from from that community or from that place or wherever it might be? That's that's all I'm querying. I'm just I'm sort of thinking out loud, which um, it's, it's interesting talking to you, actually. So thank you. <laughs> yeah, that's a dilemma. It's about ensuring that stories that need to get told get told, but then also ensuring that with that, the change, we're pushing for the change that we need to see in terms of ensuring that instead of a, a white Westerner coming from the global north down into the global south, that as soon as possible, as quickly as possible, we have that imbalance addressed. And, and then, I don't know, we're telling stories about, about people on our doorstep and focusing more on that, you know, and and, and, and looking looking inwards in, in, in terms of, you know, just exposing the inequalities the, that exist within our countries and the things that need to be addressed, you know, the, this... Because it's always because that's part of like the the visual communication. The issue with the visual communication, especially you know around global overseas development, is that somehow that the the situation in the global south is is a natural thing. You know that it's somehow that it's just that's the way it is. You know it's just it's geography. It's you know it's just the nature of things. But it's not. It's engineered. It's been completely engineered. Continues to be engineered until we address that. And until we address the way that we function within Western countries, then that's going to be maintained. So all the more reason why we also need to tell local stories and challenge challenge things right on our doorstep. Absolutely. Yeah. And expose things happening. Yes, exactly. That's what was my first motivation. It was local, local UK, you know, politics that was just disgusting. Looking back on the past 15 years, is there anything that you would have done differently if you could? Oof. Gosh, I'm so sure there's a lot of things I would do differently, but I, I mean, the first, well, for, since 2015 till about four years ago, it was pretty extraordinary. The life that, there was not a lot of money in documentary, but the life that I was able to live because of these getting away and traveling and meeting these incredible people and then telling their stories and bringing them back to the fore and that was just an incredible way of being. And since expanding the company, we've become much more streamlined and professional. And although that's great, there's not as much room for creativity um, as there once was. And there's obviously many more overheads and responsibilities in that way. So I don't think I'd do anything differently. I No, I don't think I would, because I think it's really exciting to try different things as well. Like the way the company's evolved and we've expanded is a different a different experience than what I was having before. Um, and I like to experience as many different things as I can in life. And that's why who's, you know, what's coming next is kind of exciting, you know. But no, I don't think I've got any regrets or anything I would change. People who inspire you now, 
terms of active documentary storytellers, who would be your go-to people? It's a really good question again. Do you know, I was trying to, because films I love, have you, ever, have you seen the, um, three, Ident- three Identical Strangers? It's just an amazing documentary. I think Tim, and Tim, Tim Waddle did that. That's fairly new. Um, there's this amazing Chilean director, Mete Abede, I think her name is. Um, she did The Mole Agent recently. That's brilliant. Another woman called, who, who did Dick Johnson is Dead. Have you seen that as well? That's brilliant, about dementia and about her own father. And again, films that like about own experiences and, you know, putting on own experiences are, are just fantastic and always come across well. Anything that Simon Chin basically produces, I love, like The Imposter or uh, Man on Wire, um, the one about the animals, uh, the gorillas. Um, yeah, there's lots of people I admire, and it's mostly feature doc directors. Um, but yeah, I'd like to see more women feature uh, feature doc directors coming. So, the people who inspire your feature doc filmmakers, would you ever be inspired to do one yourself? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, definitely. I've and I've I've been trying. There's one that I've been filming for many years about a funeral director, who's a fantastic subject, and it's an incredible way of talking about life and death. Well, death that we really need to speak about more in our society again. This is something I I think is important um, so that we are more prepared for it when it happens to our mothers and fathers and uncles and brothers and sisters and everyone around us. And more so since I've suffered my own uh, grief, something someone close to me. And it's just that awkward. I don't know if it's the same in Ireland or France, but in Britain, it's very stiff off the lip, let's not talk about it. And then everyone grieves in private. And I think that's really damaging for mental health. So yeah, I've, been tr- I've shot a lot um, since f- over eight years. I've shot with this incredible guy who runs his own funeral parlour, but within it, there's been trials and tribulations off and off. There's a villain of the piece, his kind of competitor of this other funeral home. And um, and there's humour because obviously it's a really dark subject. So he's super, he's really funny. So he brings light and levity to it, but we also talk about mental health with his partner, his business partner. And it's a fantastic story, but being able to spend, be, being able to dedicate time to it has not been easy um, to be able to get it funding, to be able to get into the edit and so on and so forth. But I'm, I hope to get that out. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, thank you so much for your time and, and thank you for sharing all that you have with me today. I really appreciate it. No, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much. And thank you for letting me rethink everything. (laughs) Thanks for listening to the Documentary Storytellers podcast. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Gemma. You can find links to her work in the show notes, along with all the people, organizations and work referenced in the interview. Please subscribe to the podcast wherever you might be listening and to the newsletter at documentarystorytellers.com forward slash newsletter. And please help more people to learn about Gemma's work and the work of everyone I've interviewed by sharing this and other episodes with everyone and anyone you think might be interested. If you have any feedback or would like to help me with production of the podcast, then please email me at chris at documentarystorytellers.com. Thanks again, and until next time, take care.